Hello and welcome to Dead Folks Tales, an Authors on the Air Global Radio Network podcast. I'm your host, Nola Nash. I am the author of the Crescent City series, which includes both Crescent City Moon and Crescent City Sin, and my upcoming release, Traveler. And I am super excited to have you here with me today because I have got a great author for you to meet. We're going to talk about... Um, some interesting things about New Orleans and Katrina. And we're not gonna get into as much of the nitty gritty as, as you might think, but we've got an interesting story for you and a tie-in with my guest, Julie Gandrell. And Hi. Julie, thank you so much today <laughs> for Dead Folks Tales. I'm thrilled to have you on, and I'm gonna let you go ahead and tell the folks a little bit about yourself. You know yourself better than I do, so I'm gonna well, let you them whatever it is you want them to know. Oh my goodness. Hello, Nola. Thank you so much for inviting me to join this conversation tonight. It's an honor and it's I'm looking forward to the fun. Um, a little bit about me. As you can tell, I'm pretty frazzled. <laughs> I'm doing the best I can like everybody else to just get through every day and juggle a million balls. And that's a wonderful life to live, isn't it? Um, I love to stay busy. I work as an author, an editor, a ghostwriter. I'm a public speaker. I do copy editing. I mean, not edit, editing for... Um, developmental edits and substantive line edits for publishers and for private clients. So I'm always going in a million directions. And I teach uh, the MFA program in the MFA program for Drexel University. So I have wow, students, lady. private coaching clients, just a little bit of everything. And I couldn't love it more. I just love when everything do you about sleep? It. I don't sleep. Can you tell? <laughs> I look 80 years older than I am. Um, and that's okay, because I pack Nonsense. as much life into a day as I possibly can. I love life. I love people. I love stories. I love connecting with people and hearing their stories. And so I just, I, I love it. But I also, I mean, it's not my whole life. I love my family and adventure and gardening and, you know, travel, music. Yes. Uh, you know, there's so much joy in any given day. And it's just, you know, a lot to pack in in 24 hours. You know how that is. <laughs> Who cares about is. sleep? <laughs> That's right. Who needs to sleep? There's too many other fun things to do. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Now, you wrote a book a while back. You are a New York Times USA Today bestselling author, correct? Am I right in that? Uh, yes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'll so, own it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Own that. Hey, girl. I mean, come on. Take credit where credit is due on that one for Thank sure. You. Yeah. So you have several books that are out, but the one we're kind of focused on, it's actually one you wrote a while back, The Feathered Bone. Yeah. And it takes place in pre-Katrina New Orleans. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is because of that pre-Katrina part of the story. Katrina has become, Hurricane Katrina, for those of you who have not been on this planet for <laughs> the last decade. Um Hurricane Katrina, of course, devastated New Orleans and a lot of the Gulf Coast. And it has become such a marker in time, especially down there. Things are either before the storm or after the storm, pre-Katrina, mm -hmm. post-Katrina. And it is interesting that we, we feel like we have to make that distinction. And people who are not familiar with the Gulf Coast and with New Orleans may not understand why that is and, and what that even that gap of time right after the storm i mean even a few years after the storm it changed the city so much if you've gone down recently to new orleans i mean maybe pre-covid it was it looked a little different thanks to covid <laughs> but pre-covid if you went down to new orleans and, and i've been several times you almost wouldn't know unless you went to certain parts of the city 
that anything ever really happened. It has come back so much. Mm-hmm. But even with that, it is still such a point in time for the people there. And the people who who live there, who love that city, who've been there all along, they can see the difference. So there is a pre-Katrina and post-Katrina for them. Why did you choose pre-Katrina, New Orleans, when you decided to write that? Yeah, well, exactly what you just said. You know, I'm a Louisiana girl. I grew up in Louisiana and stayed there all the way from my birth, all the way through after grad school at LSU in Baton Rouge. Then we moved on. But Louisiana is where all of my family are. That's my home. Um, all of us, the pre-Katrina, post-Katrina marker, which is used in that book as a metaphor for the storms of life that come through. We all have storms of life that affect us and we carry that before and after mark in our hearts forever. Nothing is ever the same after that storm, whether it's a spiritual storm or physical storm or financial storm or emotional, you know, whatever it is, or a literal, you know, her actual storm. Yeah. (laughs) And so the hurricane just served as the perfect metaphor in my mind for showing the before and after marks in life. Um, Katrina definitely it didn't just impact New Orleans permanently. It led to one of the greatest modern migrations in our, in yes. our nation. It completely shifted all of the surrounding parishes all the way to Houston, where I am now. I mean, these these populations shifted permanently as a result mm-hmm. of Katrina. So it was fascinating for me to go back 10 years after the storm to do all the research and look at, you know, hours and hours and hours of YouTube footage and see it from a different perspective 10 years out mm-hmm. and ask ourselves what we've learned as a result of, you know, that happening. That's a huge question. I love that question. question. Yeah. What have we learned? And I think there's so many lessons, you know, people think about, well, you learn to build higher levees, you learn to, to install better pump systems, but that's, that's not where the real lessons were. I think the real lessons were in, strength and humanity. And that's something you really see even to this day when Hurricane Ida hit. I saw a lot of posts from people who were afraid of another Katrina. And it wasn't just so much the storm. It was the aftermath. It was the looting. It was, you know, so much of that that was not good about Katrina. And then relieved that those were not the same issues this time around, as scary as Ida was, there were some lessons in humanity that there was so much neighbor helping neighbor. If I don't have this and you, or if I have more of this than I need, I'm going to let you have some of this. Um, People letting other people charge their phones on their generators. And I saw it was a picture of, it was a fence, uh, just a, a wooden fence. And on one side of it was a little table and a, a power strip that somebody had plugged into a generator and it had a little sign on there. It said, you know, charge your phones. And people were just, you know, they were, I have electricity. I have a generator. You need a place to charge your phone. Here's my power strip. Plug in. And I mean, they weren't asking anything for that. There were people just with bottles of water, you know, set out for people. I mean, yes, there's still the trash collection issue. That's that's become a, a big thing. <laughs> that's never fun when it's 90 degrees and you've got a month of trash sitting out. But I think the the humanity that we saw after Ida was a really good demonstration of what people learned as a result of Katrina and that you can go a lot further toward recovery if you're working together instead of having to work against each other 
kind of that free for all mentality that that happened after Katrina because they were so devastated. I mean, they had nothing. So, I mean, it was understandable in a lot of ways what happened, but I love the lessons that we saw from Katrina that were reflected after Ida. And it was yeah. interesting to see that. Yeah, what's ironic is Ida and also the great flood of 2016 in which all mm -hmm. of my family flooded and all of my home community. Um, it, those both happened on the anniversary of Katrina. So which we have this really pattern. universally, it's like, really? Thanks. You know, we don't yeah. need a reminder. Can we have a different date for this? Please? <laughs> we remember. We well, don't need something it, else marking it. Thanks. Exactly. And it does trigger all of those traumatic mm -hmm. you know, responses because when you've been rescued in a boat by a stranger and can only grab, you know, one, you know, your purse and your dog right. or your kid and a diaper bag. And you don't know when you're going to be able to come back and everything, your house, your car, your daycare, your church, your school, everything is underwater or gone. I mean, it's devastating on every level. And when you add other factors to that age, you know, ability mm -hmm. or disability, mental issues, lack of support system. I think the main thing we learned, especially in Katrina, is that a lot of us, particularly in the city areas, not so much in the rural areas, had become very dependent on believing that the government or FEMA would swipe, swoop in and rescue us and right. give us what we need. And what we learned is, no, we have to rely on one another and everybody has something to offer. Mm -hmm. Everybody has a way to serve and help at least one person. And if we all just do what we can, like you said, I have no food, I have no water, but I have power. And then right. somebody else brings the food and somebody else brings the water. And all of a sudden, you're okay. And you're yes. not alone in the darkness. And you, you know, you're going to survive it however long it lasts. It's kind of that stone soup story yes, in exactly. many ways. Beautiful. You know, huh. the stone soup metaphor of, of everybody kind of coming together, contributing what they have for the greater good. And then yeah. that spreads so much farther than if we were to hoard everything that, you know, the one thing that we had. And I love that that, that is the lesson that, that came from that. And just, just knowing that you can depend on neighbors more than you can depend on, you know, it takes time to mobilize government. It takes money yeah. to mobilize, you know, any, anything like FEMA. And we learned how, long that can actually take. So yeah, we can't sit around and wait on someone else to, to bail us out. It's kind of like why I think we like the the Disney movies where the princess doesn't need the prince. <laughs> you know, she, Yay! You know, Moana, she's going to solve her own problems. We've yeah. got, you know, I mean, we, we love the Disney princess. Like, I don't need you. <laughs> Disney's well, princess and the frog, you know, I mean, Tiana, come on, she's going to go do her thing, live her dream and do, do that. And those, those speak to me because I love I love that sense of I'm going to do what I can do to take care of myself, but I'm also going to do what I can do to take care of you. I'm not waiting on somebody else to come swoop in and save me. Yeah. Not when I have the ability to do it myself and not everybody had the ability to exactly. do that. And it's wonderful to see the people seeking out those who didn't have that ability. And exactly. I love the Cajun Navy. The stories of the Cajun Navy yeah. just make me smile. I mean, yeah. these are people who have their own boats who mobilize themselves and they go out there in those floodwaters and they're rescuing people. This is not a government agency. These are locals. And it's like, we got this. Yeah. And they go out there. They're fantastic. I love that we have those kinds of things. And that's my people. I mean, I grew up in rural Louisiana and it's a very, um, it's the kind of culture where we live off the land and we care deeply about people. People always ask me, why don't 
people move. You know, with the climate change and these storms mm -hmm. getting stronger and bigger and the flood, the water's rising and the coastline eroding, there's so many reasons to leave Louisiana, right? On top of mm -hmm. all the other stuff. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> I don't think people outside of Louisiana, I've lived all over the country now. Louisiana is a very unique, wonderful culture that there's just no other state like it, in my opinion. Right. It's so magical and beautiful. And I don't think they realize how deeply tied we are as a people to the land and to our community. Mm -hmm. It's not some, it is a piece of that. I'll be my own hero kind of mentality, but also we, we learned or we rem remembered that it's okay to have someone help us and mm -hmm. it's okay to, to reach out and help other people. So we became even more united and more connected after Katrina. And now I just, I think it would take a lot to make someone leave that state who had been there through all of these things, because you, it's almost like they've bonded even closer yes. as a result of these things and learn to really have deep, deep, deep connections with their neighbors and their extended community circles. It's, and I'm, it's like I'm a so family. glad you mentioned rural Louisiana. Yeah. Because we think about New Orleans, there's a lot of tourists, a lot of parties, lots of parades, that kind of thing. But in the rural areas, they really are coming together for a lot of things, whether it's a Kushan delay or, I mean, you're having this big pig roast and everybody's coming in again, you know, the potlucks, you know, the big, you know, you go to the churches and you have, you know, the, they're going to go tend the cemeteries and there's a big party and, you know, food everywhere. And always they food. Together. there's always food and there's always <laughs> music. I mean, there's like always so music. Yeah. Always. <laughs> it does create that sense of community. And even though it's like, I'm going to go save myself, I think that's more of a collective I like we always say, you know, y'all exactly. can be one person. <laughs> so it's you know, y'all doesn't have to be plural. It's like this community is going to save themselves. And we had a very similar experience to that in Nashville when we the had the huge flood in 2010. Mm -hmm. And Nashville just picked themselves up by the bootstrap, started helping themselves. We mm -hmm. didn't wait on anybody. The right. national news came, but by the time the national news actually exactly. showed up, we were already <laughs> on our way to, you know, we're pulling up the floorboards in the rhyme and trying to dry them out. You know, right. <laughs> it was like yeah. that's what was happening. It's like, no, we got this. Y'all, you know, yeah. we're good here. We appreciated the help. We appreciated, you know, everybody that came in to help us. But at the same time, yeah, it was not a whole lot of sitting around. It was like, okay, what do you need? What do we have? What can we do? Yeah. Let's just take care of this. And I think that's, you develop those relationships, especially in rural Louisiana. Yeah. I think and that's I, such I, a great tight knit community. And I won't say there's benefit to organization because I will say the people, the, the churches mm -hmm. are instrumental in, oh, yeah in organizing and realizing, you know, the management of, di of distributing the resources and the help and maintaining a database of where people are when they were searching for loved ones or, mm -hmm. you know, who was missing, who needed uh, medical help, you know, those kind of things. It was good to have a centralized location to organize that kind of stuff. Yes. Unfortunately, as you said, federal government is just too big. The red tape is mm -hmm. too much. And it ends up adding so much more stress and trauma to people who are already in trauma mode that they just get overwhelmed mm -hmm. by the whole process and the rejections and the paperwork. But yes. the churches already have this trust and this relationship built with the local people. And they know exactly who needs what help and how to get it to them. Mm -hmm. um, and as we said, a lot of Louisiana people are a little bit resistant to accepting help and the churches because they yeah. have that trust built mm -hmm. um, have a little bit more in to to help them you know it's, it's absolutely a lot of you know people put their guards up and they're not going to necessarily trust a stranger from FEMA to come in but they will accept mm -hmm. you know somebody from their church to come in and bring them food and I think about caring for 
gender for strangers and strangers became a, you know, a, a relative term after that. My dad lived in Baton Rouge when Katrina mm -hmm. hit and I was already here and outside of Nashville, but my dad was in Baton Rouge and he had a family that he did not know. A family of mm -hmm. four mm -hmm. stayed with him for two months. Mm -hmm. He had not met them yeah. before the storm and he enjoyed getting to yeah. know that family. Um, the wife was a heck of a cook and <laughs> like they that. didn't have much <laughs> that they could, you know, to do for him, yeah. but he never ate so well in his <laughs> life. <laughs> so she fattened him up and, you know, they were looking for family in the, that had evacuated actually to Houston. They did eventually connect with them and they went on to Houston to find their family. But the stories of of all of them in the house with my dad, you know, he was, mm -hmm. he was by himself in a house with plenty of bedrooms. He that had was, space. That and was nice while he him. didn't have a whole lot to give, he had space. And a lot of folks in New Orleans did the same thing. Yeah. And, I mean, in Baton Rouge took in the folks from New Orleans. Yeah. And it was just fantastic to see that. And, and my dad till the day he died would talk about that. Yeah. And just what a great experience that actually was. And for folks who don't really understand the scope of the storm, yeah. I want to show you how big and nasty Katrina was. And I mean, New Orleans is labeled there. It was incredible. The size of the storm, the power of the storm, and just all of that red right there. I mean, the eye of the storm was so well-defined. The red in the center of that storm, of course, moved right over the city. And when you've got levee systems and you've got lots of things that can fail, that's not a good sign. I mean, yeah. that, that's, that's a frightening thing for people to see coming at them. And, you know, we were watching it again with Ida and oh, yeah. I don't know how Grand Isle keeps holding themselves together. <laughs> Those are some <laughs> strong people down there. You want to talk about people who are tied to their land. It's the mm -hmm. folks in Grand Isle <laughs> because they are so exposed and yet yeah. they stay there and they protect it with all they've got. And yeah. I, I just am impressed that they I continue to go back down there. Yeah, there's no um, better example of resiliency and strength and faith than the people of Louisiana. I really believe mm -hmm. that. And as you said, Ida was even stronger than Katrina. And as a lot of people say, the strongest, longest, most severe winds they've ever sustained mm -hmm. through many storms. We're all accustomed to living with storms in Louisiana. We grew up, yeah. hurricanes are just part of the culture. We know how to deal with them. But mm -hmm. Katrina and Ida and Camille, you know, we know the big ones mm -hmm. that had life-changing impact in the Those state. Those are names you never forget. You never forget. And um, they will continue for generations to be names that we know and mm -hmm. remember. And Katrina was definitely one of those. And and unfortunately, the Great Flood of 2016 didn't have a hurricane didn't name, name. But it was it devastating. It was incredibly devastating because the flooding mm -hmm. flooding can be, you know, so intense. Um yeah, these our storm, our flood had no name either. Why don't they name floods? I feel it's like, a, you know, they need a name. We had the flood of 2010 or the May Day flood because it was May yeah. 1st, but we all call it the flood of 2010. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it, maybe we're, maybe we're taking some of the power away from it by not giving a name. I don't know. But I, I feel like, you know, doing that. Yeah. You because personify that and just say, get mad at it, you know? And it's like, no, remember that? Yeah. But, but you know what? You know, not to name your kid. But not to name your kid. That's right. No one's naming their children Katrina or I. Right. Anymore. Exactly. <laughs> it's not happening. It's exactly. just not. One of the things, the stories, and of course, this is Dead Folks Tales. So we, you know, we always tell our kind of a little bit more macabre story here. But I, I do, it's a macabre story, but in a way, but I love this story too. Like there is some humanity, of course, in the story of Vera Smith. And Miss Vera Smith um, 
was not able to leave New Orleans as Katrina came in. Um, she died actually after the storm made landfall. And it's unclear exactly how she died. The story is that she was hit by a car. She was walking to a store around the corner. But there, her injuries did not corroborate that. So there, there's some mystery around how Vera died. And Vera was, was known in the community. She owned bars and restaurants and things like that. Uh, she was a bit of a character, very New Orleans character. So everybody around that area knew Miss Vera. And when Vera died, because of the the number of dead that they were still trying to find, to rescue, to put somewhere. It was very um, reminiscent of some of the yellow fever outbreaks in the city of New Orleans where there was nowhere to put them anymore. And Vera actually lay where she died for four days. Hmm. And on the fourth day, literally lying on the side of the road, after a few days, uh, the neighbors one of the neighbors finally went and got a shovel and started pulling dirt from the park across the street to put over her. And they've created for her a makeshift grave where she was because they were upset about what was happening to her. I mean, yes, there was a health concern there. You don't want you know someone lying there decomposing. But they also felt like it was disrespectful to her and her memory and mm -hmm. who she was in that community to allow that to happen to her. And so they created for her a makeshift grave. And this actually became this image that was, um, here lies Vera, God help us, became very iconic as far as the repercussions and the impact of Katrina and what was really going on in that city when someone who has died from a car accident or whatever it was can simply be laying there because there is no one to do anything about that except for the neighbors. And Vera, um, being the character that she was, um, she it was actually not until that photograph made the news that her family who had evacuated actually knew that she died. That's actually how they found out what had happened to their mom. Um, she had children, grandchildren, and that is how they found out about Vera was that image. Mm. Um, they can, there is some pain behind knowing that that happened to your mom, but there is also, there's also comfort in knowing that the neighbors cared enough to at least do something about that and to create that for her. She was eventually cremated, um, which a lot of that's, that's what they could do with people. There wasn't, you know, there's too many to bury at the time. Um, but there was also an artist who created a shrine to Vera mm. in that same location. There is a restaurant that is now right there, kind of right where she was called Charcoal. And on the wall of the outside of the restaurant, an artist has created a shrine that is dedicated to Vera and her memory of- You hit me just, I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> I mean, it, it seems so macabre and, and it's just so horrible to think that that happened to her, but then the community rallies and and comes together to honor her in such a beautiful way. And it is so fitting that this shrine for Vera is on the outside of a restaurant in her neighborhood where you know, the neighborhood she, she couldn't leave before yeah. the storm yeah. where she, she lived and died in that neighborhood. Um, now the, the restaurant has had some rough times that they, they wonder if maybe Vera's a little upset about the, <laughs> the way that she died and then was treated for a while. But um, 
you know, the, the shrine that is there is, is very touching and it's very beautiful. So if you happen to go down there, um, it is off of Magazine Street. And you can go to Charcoal and see the shrine to Vera that is there. Wow. And for all of these great stories, somebody you probably know well, uh, Chris Rose, who is a journalist for the Times-Picayune. And this book, of course, is an iconic story yeah. and a collection of articles and stories that really show the people coming out of Katrina and just kind of the, the gritty just what was really happening in the city, but also Chris Rose being Chris Rose, there's that, that little bit of almost sardonic humor that he also <laughs> throws in a little bit of wit there. So you, you think this is going to be chilling and depressing, but at the same time, um, it is, it is not as depressing. What you see is the strength that we talked about, the community coming together, that struggle, that fight, that clawing back to life that they are, are so passionate about in New Orleans. Um, a, a great book to check out if you're interested in any of this and the stories, um, if you like The Hours, what's the story, the movie that took place down there at that time. One Dead in the Attic is, is a great book to read as well about that and that time in Katrina. But you chose pre-Katrina, because pre-Katrina, I love it, the, the glow of pre-Katrina, pre that was yeah. the New Orleans that drew everybody down there before there was ever any worry about something yeah. like this, ever the marker of the storm. Yeah. So when you chose pre-Katrina, that allowed you to kind of find the light, but also face the darkness that was coming. Because your story is, I mean, we're looking at a missing child and, and human trafficking. This mm -hmm. is talk about a storm coming mm -hmm. is what's yeah. going on with this, this friend. It was it's the, the main character and her daughter and the friend, it's the friend, the little girl that goes missing. Correct. Yeah. I kind of wanted to explore like, what's the worst thing that I could possibly imagine happening. And as a mom and a teacher and educator, you know, going on a field trip and not coming home with one of the children was mm -hmm. one of my greatest fears. And so, and I think it's one of the greatest fears of every mother and teacher oh, yeah. and, you know, anybody responsible for children. So that's what mm -hmm. I explored. I opened it in New Orleans. We see this pivotal, you know, traumatic moment in just a few seconds, everybody's life has changed. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and the storm kind of serves as a metaphor for that, for sure. I absolutely love that guys. <laughs> I want you to check out the book. It is called the feathered bone and it is a great read. There's there's so much power and just the metaphor of the storm is is incredible. And now that we have had the conversation about the storm and what that meant to the city and just the lessons learned and that storm of life, both literal yep. and figurative. What a great, great book. I'm so grateful for you sharing that with me and then talking about this, you know, as somebody who is as connected to Louisiana and the land, even though we're not there. I mean, I feel it pulled me home so much. Always. I really, it, it will always be home. I don't care <laughs> where I live. It, yeah. it is always home. Yeah. No when I say I'm going like home, it. that's where I'm going. That's home. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And uh, like you said, we just laugh our way through the pain in Louisiana. And uh, <laughs> that's sing. all we can do, right? Keep singing, keep, singing, keep eating. <laughs> that's, that's right. I mean, do. hey, we do have hurricane parties. I mean, you we stock do. up on the food. And I remember after Hurricane Andrew, man, my dad barbecued everything that was thawing out in our deep <laughs> That's freeze. right. We ate you make like a big kings. For the whole yeah. Nobody's <laughs> ever going to starve in Louisiana. I did learn that. <laughs> we Never. feed each other very well. That's right. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely.
thank you so much for giving us a chance to talk about home and yes. just, you know, this, the resiliency and the beauty of community. It really Absolutely. is something special. Thank you. And thank, well, you, thank for you for joining me. Julie, support. tell folks um, where they can find you on social media. Um, just go to my website. You can find all my links there at my name, juliecantrell.com. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for joining us for Dead Folks Tales. This has been a copywritten podcast of Authors (laughs) on the Air Global Radio Network. Special thanks to our producer, Roman Sirotin, and of course, our executive producer, Pam Stack. And I hope that you will join us again for another episode of Dead Folks Tales every Tuesday night, same time, same place. And until then, thanks for joining us. Dancing under the fire moon